0: Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. As always, each episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show explores how today's horror filmmakers are getting their movies made while deconstructing their methods and career strategies into practical insights that you can use on your own horror filmmaking journey. This includes creative processes, funding resources, favorite books and tools, key life lessons, and much, much more. Today's guest needs no introduction. Eli Roth is one of the heads on the Mount Rushmore of horror and it's for good reason. This is actually my second interview with Eli and if you haven't already I recommend listening to my first conversation with him prior to this one. This time around Eli and I dug deep into the making of Thanksgiving, the status of Thanksgiving 2, how he comes up with new gore gags and the keys to running a fun and productive set. Thanksgiving by the way is now streaming on demand and available on Blu-ray. In any case, without further ado, here is the man himself, Eli Roth. Thanksgiving's coming out on VOD and Blu-ray. And first of all, thank you for doing a director commentary. I feel like it's becoming a lost art these days.
1: I always shoot stuff for the extras, like uh, a gag reel. I keep a log of deleted scenes that I try to sound design as much as possible. I'm from the Laserdisc generation, so I love getting those discs that are loaded with extras. Yeah. Even when we were shooting, I gave all the cast like 1999, handy cams so that we could shoot, you know, the videos so that look like Blair Witch style for their POV of behind the scenes of the making of the movie. So, you know, we had the cast members all were allowed to shoot whatever they wanted. We could take it and digitize it and just pick the best moments. So. um You know, it was, it was great. Like I, I love doing the commentary and to do it, you know, with Jeff Rendell is my best friend is pretty hilarious.
0: One of the things I keep hearing whenever I read any stories about the cast and their perspective is that your sets are some of the most fun sets. So I'm curious, how do you balance that sense of fun on set while ensuring everybody's professional and things get done on time and everyone knows their lines? I mean, I feel like it's a real fine balance.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you, you don't, you don't try to win everyone over. You don't try to be the party guy or the fun guy. You come in prepared and you come in prepared to work. Yeah. And you make sure that everyone is prepared. And if everyone is prepared and do your job, it should be a joyous experience. Like the joy isn't we're having a good time goofing off and telling jokes. The joy is, oh my God, that we came up with something really funny. That take is great. That line is hilarious. That's the satisfaction because the rest of our lives are filled, you know, with, Anything that other than making movies, like you get these 30 precious days to get on set, and this is our shot to make a classic. So for me, it's getting everyone in that mindset and being prepared with the DP and being prepared with shots. Like sets are miserable when someone is being a dickhead or the director's not prepared. Uh, someone's in a bad mood, and they're taking it out on everyone, and everyone has their days, like everyone has their moments. So you have to create this environment where if someone's having a bad day, you just pick them up because we're all going to have them. So you you make it not a big deal and you cheer them up and you like lift them up and it's going to elevate everything so that there are no bad days. Yeah, And that you invite, like everyone was on set, hanging out, having a good time. It was such a fast shoot that they didn't want to miss anything and they wanted to be there to support everybody. And, and you could say, like if it's an emotional scene for now, like the, the ending, like do you want, I know she wants 10 people around with handicaps and we discussed it before and everyone's like, everyone's like, oh, cool. No, no one's offended. Everyone's like, no, no, no. we, we want her to feel great about it. But then maybe like during the scene with the dinner by day two, everyone's like, we got this, (laughs) you know, we're like screaming and crying and then going and hanging out in the green room, playing guitar and watching everyone's takes and joking around. So, um, but you have to have this environment of trust where everyone feels supported and everyone's trying to help each other be great. Hmm. And that's, that's when it becomes fun. And, You know we look we just got lucky sometimes you you know you get cast members that are difficult and we just got lucky that everyone was cool everyone was great like i i I really love the cast and you can see that comes through we said the only way we're going to believe you guys are all really close friends is if you are to a certain extent and they all made the effort they all did they all hung out all the time and really liked each other
0: and it was uh we just got lucky it was the right mix well the good thing is all the survivors get to do it again hopefully for thanksgiving too So I'm sure you're (laughs) semi-tight-lipped. Well, now that Thanksgiving has transcended a single movie into a franchise, how are you thinking in terms of slasher franchise rules? Because you have a new slasher world, new mythology. How has this shifted in your brain towards what you're going to do in terms of a franchise? You know,
1: I try to eliminate the word franchise and just think of it like another movie I'm making. Um, you know, and like not universe and franchise. Like that stuff I think doesn't help me creatively. Uh, I just try to think as a fan, I just paid my money on a Friday night to go see this opening night. And I'm sitting in the theater and the stream, you know, is dark and the light comes up and I'm like, this better be good. Yeah. And what do I want to see? And what am I expecting? What am I hoping for? And what is it like? Whoa, I did not see that coming. And you want to give those. You want to give like, all right, you know, the moment where the return of a familiar character you love go deeper into their world a little bit and then enter some new people you know all all of those various things but jeff and i are now just kind of going through it's like a choose your own adventure book called thanksgiving too you just like go down this chapter and thought up oh, you're dead oh stop Go oh, there you go so it's you know writing you're like driving in the dark or in the fog you're like i think i know it kind of this way i think we go this way i think we go this way so one of the great things about Sony is they've been so supportive for us, you know, in releasing a horror movie in November, which no one no one had done, releasing one at Thanksgiving time. So good for them for for taking that chance. And the fans obviously for showing up. Um, but it's it's now just this process of us, you know, we, we don't have to rush it. Like if I was had a movie for twenty twenty four, I'd already have to be in prep. Meaning I'd have to have written a script over Christmas, just knock one out in three weeks and I don't think anything great comes from that. I think you, you, you do need to, sometimes it just pours out of you like Hostel did, but this, I really need to take our time to, to figure it out. And that's what we're going to be doing the next few months. We'll have a script and we'll shoot it either this year or early next year, but we're ready for
0: fall 2025. Awesome. So Thanksgiving represents a real return to form for you. It had be, been a while since you did like a hard R gory, scary movie. So before Spielberg does any movie, there's four movies he watches, Lawrence of Arabia, It's a Wonderful Life, Seven Samurai, and The Searchers. Was there anything that you watch to kind of reground yourself and your sensibility for Thanksgiving or just in general? Yeah,
1: I always watch the stuff of the tone of the movie I'm making, you know, or, or stuff to break my brain up a little bit. So one of the movies I saw, one you actually had 35 screening of was Mute Witness, mm. uh, Anthony Waller's film. It's an amazing film, completely underrated. It's such great cat and mouse slasher. Uh, especially the first 45 minutes of that movie are, are jaw-droppingly perfect. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. Even, I like it more and more and more every time I watch it. There's so many great things about that film. Um, so, you know, then I went back and watched like the classic slasher movies. I mean, there's, you know, The House That Screened, Stare Film is one of those movies, but... Uh, you know, it, it sort of depends on the genre. And then other times I like to, you know, you kind of stop watching. You don't want to overdo it. I don't want to like mm. infect yourself too much because then you find you're trying to recreate what someone else did as opposed to just sort of seeing what's in front of you and going to location and discovering it. You know, The Vanishing is one of those greats, the Dutch version, obviously. But, but the, uh, that's one of those movies that you'll always go back to and just go, wow, this is a, this is a perfect
0: film. So, but in this one, it was definitely new witness for sure. Nice. So when coming up with new kills, what is your process for coming up with something that's gory and different and awesome? Do you, you walk the aisles at Home Depot? Do you read Grey's Anatomy? How do you come up with new and inventive kills?
1: I mean, all you have to do is look for a parking spot at Whole Foods and wait for someone to take your spot and (laughs) you'll have 200 kills instantaneously. Um, no, I mean, I, I have like a laundry list of kills and things I wanted to do and like ways to put them in movies. But, you know, Jeff and I will talk about it. I'm like, you know, like the oven kill, And then we we, we just, me and Milan and Jeff, we, were, we just went to, we went to the, Jeff's like, there's this barn. Did you see that barn? Because next to the McCarty party house, there was this old barn. And we're like, we never got to shoot it in there. And we're like, I, we went in there and we thought the basement of it was so good. It was so big. We're like, this could be the prep room. And then I thought we need, what can we do for the cat and mouse? And we, then there was the kitchen of the McCarty house that we had not used that I loved because it, it was like a Texas chainsaw master kitchen. So we're like, what if he, and then we were in the barn and we're looking around and it's like, okay, what if he in this room is the table? And then there's the ebony comes back and she, she's gone. And then we looked and there was just this pitchwork just there. <laughs> and then we grabbed it and we're like, oh, that's it. He's got to get the pitchwork. but that was like four days before shooting yeah we're like oh it'll be like the prowler because so i remember the pitchfork death in the prowler so the name kind of coming around with pitchfork oh like oh yeah and then she can hide and you can poke and we're like what if we, we just start coming up with stuff and the are like oh but then she goes here and then you know what if he's in the middle of the room when she's hiding behind the door like we start talking through it and then we're like oh it's great and then he gets her puts it down and i go let's let's go check out that kitchen we went to the kitchen and we're like oh my god now he can have like you can see where john carver has you know, the two different streams and the different timers and the, you know all that kind of stuff. All this tech, hacking. there's a mattress in the floor and pizza box. was like, has he been sleeping here? And who is this? Like, this disgusting. They were like, Oh, what if she's in the fridge? Like Texas James, master master with the girl in the freezer. And you know, then it's like, yeah, he gets her and she runs. And, and then Jeff was like, no, it can do the thing and credit her where she does the fake out with the footsteps, the blood. It's like, yes, yeah, she see the blood. And, and then the, The pitchfork comes to So I'm calling my prop guy. Go, we need a duplicate pitchfork and taking pictures of the wall. Go, we need a fake wall. Can you do it in three days? Got to ram the pitchfork through. Like it's just the process where you're with Jeff, you know, in Milan, where we, we just kind of walk. Once we have the scene, we go, we have the oven kill. We're shooting it for two and a half days, probably a full day in the oven, day in the prep room, day and a half. What can we do? And then we just walk through and you just start like throwing stuff out and figuring it out. But that's it that you just have to trust. You have to trust you're going to figure it out. That's part of it. Yeah. They go. And then Justin Harding is a fantastic director. You should see his episodes of the Haunted Museum. That he did. it It's amazing. Justin does this program, Frame Forge, where he can rebuild the space in five minutes and Whoa. set up the exact camera and the exact lens and like stand-ins and the props. So he could just build it in Frame Forge. And then we now have a perfect visual representation of where we're going to shoot. And if we're starting on Monday, on Friday, you know, me and Justin will start building shots and doing camera moves. And then I'm sending those to my editor and, you know, the two editors are going to be, okay, yeah, we'll add a close up here. So kind of by the time we go in, we have walked through the location, we talked it out, we've gone through, we put it in frame for it, we figured it out. And so then when you're shooting, you're just knocking out the shots that you already planned. But that's prep. Awesome. That's the prep. You got to go to location and
0: walk around and figure it out. Makes sense. A last question. Obviously, Thanksgiving has been incubating for a long time, and horror subgenres kind of go in and out, like we had torture porn, then there was found footage, and then we're kind of coming out of elevated. What do you think paved the way for Th- this to be the time for Thanksgiving to be released? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I just, there hadn't been a, you know, there, there are the established
1: slasher franchises like Halloween and Scream. They're like the legacy franchises. And there's supernatural stuff that comes out, you know, obviously Talk to Me and The Nun and James Wan stuff. But there hadn't been like a new slasher, a new holiday slasher in a while. And of course, in the ensuing years after the trailer, I was like, oh, I hope no one does this. That would really suck. Um, So we figured like, yeah, 16 years is a long time to sit on an idea. But I think people were just ready I wanted to make a movie that reminded people of how fun these films were. Like, I I generally, sometimes you're ahead of the trend. Sometimes you are the trend. Sometimes you're behind the trend. Like, you never know. I didn't know Cabin Fever would be at the beginning of a wave or Hostel would be right at the wave. And then other times I'm making a movie like Green Inferno, where I'm like, this is to show people what a cannibal movie is. Like, these aren't popular. Yeah. Of the horror, this is like considered the bottom of the barrel of the subgenre. And I love them. So why don't I make one that makes people go back and rediscover the old one? So I tend to pick stuff that is my personal taste that I'm like, don't forget about these because these are really fun too. Even if it's not what the masses or the mainstream want or is popular at the moment, I just wanted to show people how, how much fun they can have. And it's nice that people gave it a chance and other people had never seen a movie like this or rediscovering it going back and watching the old ones
0: yeah yeah it's exactly what happened with me it's prompted me to finally see cannibal holocaust well i know we got a bounce but i really appreciate it eli awesome nice talk to you nick thanks a lot thanks man thanks for the support thank you all right here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation and my previous conversation with eli roth Number one, be prepared and pick people up. Eli mentions that the secret to achieving the balance of a fun and professional set is to channel excitement into the work itself rather than simply goofing off. Though there is a time and place for things like pranks and horsing around, The focus should be on cultivating a set culture that collectively revels in the filmmaking process, whether it's over an amazing shot, a performance, or practical effect. The key to creating this as a director is to be prepared and to do everything you can to ensure everyone else is as prepared. Eli also points out that on any project, people are going to have bad days. And when that happens, it's important for the set to rally and pick them up. This approach ensures an environment of trust, where everyone feels supportive, all of which is the foundation for getting great work done. Number two, face and study your fears. Eli is vocal about channeling his own fears and anxiety into his movies. For instance, Green Inferno mirrors his concerns about slacktivism, the millennial trend of supporting causes superficially on social media without any genuine action. Hostile is about xenophobia and the consequences of perceiving foreigners as the other, while cabin fever came from his personal encounter with a parasitic skin disease. Eli underscores the significance of confronting and understanding one's fears as a method to unearth the thematic core of a story, which is often hidden within these fears. In Thanksgiving, he draws upon his existential unease with the over-commercialization of Christmas, observing how the frenzied consumerism of Black Friday directly contradicts the Thanksgiving holiday's ethos of gratitude and compassion, all of which became the theme for Thanksgiving. Number three, misdirect is the key to a good scare. Modern horror audiences are tough to shock. They're very well versed in the genre's tricks and can detect a jump scare from a mile away. Eli points out that effective scares are all about the misdirect, emphasizing that the scare works best when it's off rhythm. After you lead viewers down one path, you abruptly divert them elsewhere. He notes that the most successful scares are those that break the predictable rhythm that you set as the director. Eli also stresses the importance of variety in scares and how it's crucial to compare each scare to every other scare in your movie to avoid repetition. Audiences are quick to pick up on patterns, so each scare should be unique to prevent audiences from anticipating them. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor, That's I am Nick Taylor, and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. We scare because we care. Hey guys, one last thing before you head off, and this is The Howl. How would you like a monthly newsletter featuring a recap of the latest horror news, my personal movie recommendations, updates from the show, and cool stuff I've recently discovered? If this sounds like something you'd enjoy, sign up for my monthly email newsletter, The Howl, today. You can sign up for the howl by visiting nicktaylor.com/slash the howl. That's nicktaylor.com/slash the howl.